You're listening to Rosie on the House. Come on around back, Arizona. You know that sound. It's 8 o'clock and we're going out into our outdoor living hours. The second hour of Rosie on the House. And we have Mr. Greg Peterson. It is the... Thank you. Uh, I am lit up today. (laughs) (laughs) The weather does that. Oh, let me tell you. It's, you know, the... I've got peaches setting that are about the size of marbles, and the apricots are coming, and the apples are coming in, and so you know the garden's bursting all over the place. Should I be worried that I don't have any leaf produce on much of my peach trees right now? No, actually, this has been a really interesting. That's a great question. This has been a very interesting year for that. I have two apricots in my front yard. That haven't budded out yet. Okay. So, and they're alive. We're just, you know, they're, you know, who knows? They're just confused. Hey, it's going to be, what, 68 degrees next week or something crazy like that? So, up, up, and down. 90 at the same, you know. Yeah, I've, I've had to work really hard to stop breaking branches off the peach tree just to see if it's still there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, the way you do that, I, I actually wouldn't break it, it's better to cut it. So if you can just, you know, if you, if you have a tree and you don't know whether it's alive, the uh, best thing to do is start at the very tip ends and take a pair of pruners and just cut two inches off. And you want to be right next to the node and notice the, the little lump on a limb where the leaves come out of, fruit and leaves and flowers and all that come out of the node. So if you just cut right above a node, you're looking for green rather than brown. So if you find green, then you're done cutting. If you find brown, you want to cut another two inches. And so you keep cutting until you find green. Or you're down to the stump and you're trying to plant. (laughs) Right. It's time to replace that tree. Well, what, uh, what, I kind of sidebarred you there talking about, you know, your your peaches budding out. And uh, what I love about it more than anything Aside from eating peaches, uh-huh. is I love just my peach trees right out the bathroom window. Oh, yes. I love getting out of the shower in the morning mm-hmm. and seeing the sun come up and this beautiful peach tree in bloom. It oh, only yeah. lasts about a month. But yep. Man, I look forward to that every year. Yeah. Yeah, I was just out in my front yard today and I have a peach tree that's uh, that's one that's budded out completely and has got peaches on it, one that's just flowering now. And this tree had two different colors of pink uh you know a light pink and a dark almost red flower on it so you never quite know it's you know (laughs) nature is a cool thing and this hour we're going to be talking about working with nature in this perfect time of year to jumpstart the spring garden yes exactly and in fact i do a lot of lectures this time of year uh uh, that's called jumpstart your spring garden i'm going to be speaking to the wounded warrior project here in the next week so if you're interested and that's an online class if you want to attend that class you can go to our website urbanfarm.org and find the link and reach out to lindy and she'll get you signed up for that i'm also going to be at changing hands giving the the same talk called jumpstart your spring garden and there's some really specific things that you need to do when you set out on on an adventure of growing a garden and really the first thing is observation. You really need to start paying attention to what's happening in your space. Because if you put your garden in the wrong place in your yard, because you didn't observe where the sun was at, we'll talk about that in a little while, 
you know, you may never get any garden growing because your garden's in the shade all the time. Or if you're in a more desert area and you put a garden in and there's quail and rabbits and squirrels around, you know, you need to pay attention for those. So you have the the pests and the weather and the sun. And there's so there's all different things to pay attention to. In fact, what I tell people to do is spend at least a year observing your yard before you make any major changes. Major changes is like putting a new building in or taking major trees out or anything like that. Putting in a garden is not a major change. But you really want to spend some significant time observing what's going on every month in your yard so that you know what to expect. And one of the, you know, one of the most fun pests in my yard is my dog. Uh, <laughs> I thought you say your neighbor. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Well, you know, the dog, uh, I, I used to have a black lab and she used to go out and eat the snow peas and dig up the radishes just like that. So, you, you know, those are, those are the kinds of things that you really need to pay attention to. And a full year of observation. Are, are you trying to make points to go out at different times of the day? Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. And, you know, and observe where the sun's at. Watch where the sun's at at any given uh, noontime. Uh, because, you know, when the, the sun moves in the sky, right? 13 degrees. Careful. Does it really? Uh like from, I know, right? From winter to summer, isn't it a 13 degree it, Well, it probably is 13 degrees, yes, uh, but it's it's the earth that's moving. It was a science question. Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> well, the sun is moving too, and we're moving around the sun. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Uh, but pay attention, especially on you know the winter solstice, the summer solstice, the spring equinox, and the fall equinox. We're basically at the fall equinox, which is the or the spring equinox, which is the halfway point between the lowest the sun's going to be in the sky and the highest. So we're right at the midpoint in our spring, and we're at not only great weather for planting, but it's just enjoyable physically to be out in this wonderful this wonderful spring air. We're doing our observations. We're taking note of our equinox. We're going out multiple times a day. <laughs> Microclimates. All of a sudden. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, doing your observation. Then the next piece is to really pay attention to what we talked about the sun, but pay attention to where it's at. We have what I call four exposures in our yard. There's a northern exposure a southern exposure, an eastern exposure, and a western exposure. And if you were to place your garden, jumping into that northern exposure, that's the north side of a building or a north side of a wall. So pretty much what that looks like is if you put your back against that building or wall, what direction would you be looking? And a northern exposure, you would be looking north. And so that's an area of your yard that's not going to get very much sun at all. And it's not a really great growing space. So what I tell people to do with that is two things. On December 21st, go out and notice where the sun is at at noon and how long the shadow is and put your garden outside that shadow. Or you can put your chickens over there. The chickens would love it in the summertime. Your composting goes there. Any storage goes there. So you can utilize that space for something other than gardening. And in that thought process and timing... 
take into account your, your neighbor's trees? What's on the other side of the fence? What's exactly. that going to look like in five years? Exactly. Thanks for saying that because, you know, I, I've lived at the urban farm now for almost 29 years. It's over half of my life. I know. <laughs> Romy just said, wow. Yeah, exactly. Right. And about 10 years ago, I had a, a challenge at the urban farm. And one day I was walking the neighborhood and I saw the fix for it in somebody else's yard. It's like, oh, yeah, that's how I can fix that. And so you're not just observing your space. You're observing the spaces around you as well to see what solutions that they can offer. So, Well, I'm really curious about this solution. You didn't dive into it, so maybe it's something we'll save for off air. No, no, no. no. Uh, so I needed shade on the driveway. And I kept, and there's, there's no place really that was easy to plant the shade, but one of my neighbors had a, um, an older mesquite tree that they'd planted strategically that, and a place that I'd never thought about planting it. So really that was, you know, it was a simple thing. And that's the thing when you go out and observe, there's simple things like that, that we need to observe for that are solutions for a lot of, you know, things that we don't have to do a lot of work with. There's a lot to be said for not jumping in and just trying to get this solved right here, right now, right this minute. Right. Slowing down, thinking through it, finding a way to, yes. you know, and especially if you're going to be in someplace 29 years, yeah. you know, have that long-term perspective of, you know, if it takes me two years to solve it, I've still got it, <laughs> exactly. you know, 26 years that I've been here. <laughs> right. Right. So then, then there's a Western exposure. And it, this is the reason, actually, about 15 years ago, that I developed this attitude of don't do anything major on your property for at least a year. So the house across the street sold about 15 years ago. And their front yard faces west. So they get a brunt of the sun from noon until sundown. This is a Western exposure. Western exposures are, get sun from noon till sundown. And the new neighbors, within a week, had chainsaws in their front yard, and they were cutting down these beautiful 70-year-old grapefruit trees. They hadn't been in the space long enough to know what the impact of that was going to be. And it took About them- $500 more on their cooling bill in the summer, exactly. I'm sure. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They hadn't paid attention to that. So- really pay attention, especially if it's a Western exposure. Western exposure is the hottest part of your yard. I call it the fry zone. (laughs) Yes. You know, it's the place where you're going to cook your garden if you place a garden there. The fry zone. Yeah. (laughs) Now that's that's west, not south, west. That's correct. That is a Western exposure. Do we want to cover south at all real quick before we... Well, I got a lot more to say about West before oh, okay. we, before oh, we okay. go. All right. Well, then we be, we'll, we'll cut early then because we're, we're about 90 seconds away from break. We'll start early. We'll cut early and Up have more next segment. Up to you. The Outdoor Living Hour with Farmer Greg here at Rosie on the house.
And if you're just joining us, we're with Farmer Greg. We're on the west side of the Your house, property. The, yeah. the the burn zone, the fry zone. Have you ever tried the egg thing? <laughs> no, I haven't actually <laughs> tried cooking an egg on a sidewalk, but I'm sure it could be done. I'm sure it could be if done. If you like that poach slightly rare, yeah. that, that, that might be an easy method for you. Yeah. So the, the western exposure, is it a good place to garden or a bad place to garden? Hmm. So you naturally would think bad, but I the look like in your the way eye. You think. Exactly. <laughs> so it depends on the time of year. I used to do a garden at the Calico Cowan Central, and they had a western exposure with concrete all the way around it. And it was a garden bed that was six feet wide and 60 feet long. And I found out very quickly, I ran it for about six years, I found out very quickly that from about May 1st to about October 1st, I couldn't grow anything in there. But from October 1st to May 1st, in the wintertime, I could grow everything. So we would actually have tomatoes ready to go in on October 1st. And for you gardeners out there, you know that you generally can't grow tomatoes over the winter here. They overwinter just fine on that nice, warm, hot patio. And she would be harvesting bushels of tomatoes by about Christmas time. So you have to, again, observe, observe, observe. Exactly. (laughs) You got to go out and observe the space and see what you can do with the space. And, you know, it's so a, a winter garden might be a great place on the west side, but just something to pay attention to. And then there's a the southern exposure. Southern exposure gets sun all day. And you probably want to give it some shade in the afternoon if you're planting a garden on a south, southern exposure. Uh, and really the best place to grow is an eastern exposure. An eastern exposure gets sun from sun up until noon. It's the great place the great place for your herbs, for your berries, for really that's my best garden bed is on the east side of the house. So when you you know when you're looking to place your garden, it's placement will either spell great success or a big, great big grand <laughs> flop. Now, how much do you go into container gardening at all? Do you ever have like potted stuff you move around? Or? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You should see the front porch at the urban farm. We have, I don't know, 40 pots on the front porch. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the front porch points east. So it's an eastern exposure. So by about noon or noon 30, it's getting shade. So it's it's actually a really good place. Our, our front porch is a great place to grow in pots. The biggest challenge with pots is, is that the, sun, the heat will cook them. So you have to make sure that in the summertime, when it's warmer, they get, they're getting more water so that you keep the soil hydrated. And that hydration will also kind of evaporative cooler the space. Uh, you also need to make sure that you shade the pots. You know, if you're in a southern or western exposure, that pot itself needs to be shaded. I get this question all the time. Can I put fruit trees in a pot? It depends is what I usually say. <laughs> and, you know, that's the big thing. If you if you can find a place in your yard where you can keep the pot shaded 100% of the time and get the tree some sun, you might do pretty well with it. Which can be kind of counterintuitive to a pot because there's a, obviously a decorative aspect that you're there trying you to go. accomplish with a pot. There you go. <laughs> One of the cool things I discovered a few years ago is you take sweet potatoes and you plant sweet potatoes in the pot. 
along with your tree. It has to be a pretty big pot. Uh, but sweet potatoes do great here. In fact, I just harvested, harvested some out of the urban farm the other day. Uh, and they also grow like they're vining. So they'll grow up and over and they'll actually shade the pot for you. Oh. Yeah. See? And that that came from an, from an observation that I had of how sweet potatoes grow. So really what I teach is called permaculture. I like to call it the art and science of working with nature. How do we work in the flow of nature rather than against nature? And observation is the single biggest thing that we teach and that you can do. And from your observation over the years, what's the best watering systems out there? Oh, watering systems. Well, it depends. Um, You know, if you can get flood water, if you can get flood irrigation like I have at the urban farm, you know, that's stellar. That's absolutely the best if you have a flood irrigated property. Uh, Next to that, it depends what you're watering. If you're watering trees and shrubs, bushes, those kinds of things, drip systems are hard on them. You really need a bubbler system because trees and shrubs like to get a lot of water and then they need to dry out in between. So putting a drip system with bubblers on it is... That's that's a must-do if you have a drip system. And I've I've actually developed this uh, drip ring. It's a a ring that's about 18 inches diameter, and we sell them at our pop-up nursery. And each of the emitters, there's uh, eight or ten emitters in that ring, and each one puts out a gallon per hour. So you put that ring around your tree, hook it up to your drip system, and then you run your drip system for like four hours. And... That's a deep water, and then the trees need to dry out in between, you know, a good 10 to 14 days in between watering. So that's the, that's the answer to the trees. My favorite one for your gardens is something called drip tape. And the big thing about drip tape is, is that the system pressurizes fully, and then everything gets watered evenly. Hmm. And we'll talk more about that in the next segment. And the Outdoor Living Hour with Farmer Greg here at Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition for, uh, so you say in 29 years, 30 years. Yeah. 30 years. It's only, we're only a quarter way into this year and I'm still, (laughs) still need to update my, uh, my numbers here. We'll be back right after this. Working farmer style. Farmer style. Work, 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 work. Working farmer style. Welcome back to just a beautiful Arizona farmer Saturday morning. Work, farmer Greg work, talking work, work, uh, drip tape. We were in a conversation about watering, mm-hmm. talked about how you like to do trees and shrubs. And then for gardening, uh, we're going into water is a little different. Describe to me what a drip tape looks so like. So, drip irrigation is a kind of irrigation that, you know, it basically splits your water, big water pipe, into a thousand different places in your yard, probably a hundred different places in your yard. But then there's these little drip emitters. And the big problem with drip irrigation is, is that the pressure at the beginning of the system is higher than the pressure at the end. So some things at the begin, closer to the beginning of the system are going to get more water, where some things at closer to the end of the system are going to get less water. That's my big challenge with drip 
irrigation systems. Well, drip tape is a little bit different. It's this lay-flat tape. What that means is, is that when it fills up, it looks like a pipe. Okay. When the system is turned off, the pipe goes flat again. Okay. And about every, well, every 6 to 12 inches, there's a laser cut in it. So that when this system pressurizes, that laser cut leaks. So every 6 to 12 inches in your garden, you can have a little, you know, a little bubbler or a little water coming out whenever you turn your system on. The thing is, the system won't work until the whole, all of the pipes are pressurized. So that gives us a watering system that waters evenly throughout our garden, which is really important. From the point of water, how, how long is a drip tape good for? I mean, is it, can you run 50 feet of drip tape? The, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to it. I had one drip tape system in my front yard, and I probably had 250 feet on it. Oh, wow. And it worked okay. I have since split it in half. Uh, so I have, you know, maybe 125, 150 okay. feet of drip tape. That's a um, good distance. Yeah, and it's like Tinker Toys, so you can split it up and, you know, make it out in webs in your garden. And so it doesn't have to be one complete length. But drip tape is the way to go. Uh, in fact, we'll we'll be selling some of it at the pop-up nursery and giving instructions on how to use it. And it's really, it's really simple. Like I said, it's like Tinker Toys. So. Is there anything special that you need to connect it, or does it just screw right into the hose bib? Um, you can hook them up into the hose bib. The One of the clinchers with it is that you need to drop the pressure of the incoming water. So you need, the water needs to drop be dropped down to 10 PSI. Uh, so, you know, there's a little bit more work to do to hook it up, and we can, you know, I can talk people through that. Uh, but once it's hooked up, it's, you know, I've had my front yard system set up for two years, and I I think about it twice a year. <laughs> in the spring, when I make it water more days, and in the fall, when I make it water less days. Other than that, the system just runs. It's really cool. Drip tape. Drip right. tape, yeah. Well, very good. So now we've got uh, what, below, where's the water's going into? The soil. Yeah. Oh, yes, 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 of course. Creating healthy soil. And you may have heard me say this before. Your single biggest job as an urban farmer, as a gardener, as anybody that wants to grow anything, is to grow healthy soil. And I talk about this a lot because even today I'll get people that reach out to me and they'll show me a picture of where they're trying to grow a fruit tree or a garden and it's, you know, they're growing in dirt. And although dirt is a really important component of healthy soil, if all you're growing in is dirt, yeah, good luck with that. In fact, you know Kari Spencer at the Microfarm Project? Yes. When she started... Yeah, she came out with a book recently. She did come out with a book recently. Uh, City Farming. It's uh, it's an amazing book. She did a really good job of that. Uh, but when she started gardening 15 years ago, she moved into her home and she got some pots. And she went out in her backyard and dug up some dirt right out of the backyard and put put it in the pots and tried to grow. And we've laughed about that so many times. It was a miserable failure. It just doesn't work that way. But unlike most people that would never try again. <laughs> yeah, we have to. She, so, she kept on it. Yeah. So component five components of healthy soil. And y'all that know this, repeat them in your mind before I say them. But dirt is one of them. Dirt is 
has got lots of org- uh, lots of minerals in it. Dirt is broken down rock, and it's got you know all this great minerals kind of pent up in it. And if that's all you have is dirt, the plant can't get it out. So that's number piece number one. Piece number two is airspace. You can't garden in highly compacted dirt. You have to have you know the airspace in the space so that the water can get in, so that the microbes can move around, so on and so on. The third component to healthy soil is water. <laughs> Highly dried out soil is hydrophobic. Though you know things can't grow in it. You know that's really problematic. So dirt, airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil, and the life comes with that organic matter. And I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, Greg, I added organic matter to my garden and worms showed up. I didn't add any worms, but the worms (laughs) just showed up. And they do. It's like they come from the air or something. It's the most amazing thing. So the fix for a broken garden is to work on your soil, create healthy soil. And the quickest way to do that is add lots and lots and lots of organic matter. So what is organic matter, he says. I can see it in your eyes. And just how organic are we going here? <laughs> well, you know, compost is the big thing. Uh, you know, I have created with tanks green stuff down in Tucson, you know, tanks. Uh, they and I have created my planting mix. It's called Farmer Greg's Planting Mix, which will be available in stores soon. I'm working on that. Uh, but it's a nice, well-rounded planting mix. It doesn't have any dirt in it. In fact, one of the caveats... Because there's, there's already dirt out there. Right. You're, you're going to add it when you put it on your ground. Exactly. <laughs> we have got so much dirt out there. You don't need to be buying dirt. Dirt is the broken down rock, remember. You don't need to pay for that. You don't need to haul it. It's really heavy. Uh, you know, it's just not something you need to buy. So my Farmer Greg planting mix is made up of cocoa core. It's uh, cocoa core. Like cocoa bean? Co- no, cocoa tree, coconut. Coca. It comes from coconut. Okay. Okay. It's the kind of the husk. It's an inert material that adds fluff to the soil. Uh, composted pine bark. So coconut core, composted pine bark, uh, perlite, and compost is what's in my planting mix. And planting mixes are great for pots. I highly recommend that if you're planting trees, you add planting mix to the whole, you know, some kind of planting mix, whether it's mine or not, but some kind of planting mix. Because what we need to do is we need to add the fluff. So compost and planting mixes go in your garden. So when you're planting a tree or when you're planting tomatoes or you, you know, you're putting in your spring garden, uh, often what I will do is I will put down two to four inches of planting mix and plant. Did you notice what was missing there? I didn't say dig, did I? I said put down two to four inches of planting mix or compost and plant. Because then what happens is, is that the roots of the, of the plants that you plant do the work. They do the digging for you. In fact, I love weeds growing in my yard. People kind of look at me weird. I know Gary's looking at me like, huh? what's that about? Pull my weeds? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I actually have a solution for that too. Okay. Without chemicals. The weeds... They're pioneer species. They show up first. 
they do heavy digging for us. So what I will do, here's your solution, drum roll please. What I do is I take a knife, don't tell Heidi, from the kitchen, (laughs) or a carpet. The uh, one she just sharpened last night. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or the the carpet cutter. You know those little uh, tools that are carpet cutters? Mm -hmm. They're about six inches long with a hook on the end. And I'll take those out into the garden, and I'll just go right below the soil level on the weeds. Go down about three quarters of an inch under the soil. I cut the top off of the weed. Now, the big caveat here is this does not work for nutgrass or Bermuda grass. But for, <laughs> for mallow and... It'll you make know, nutgrass worse, won't it? Yeah, it'll make nutgrass and Bermuda grass worse. <laughs> Those we'll have to talk about some other show. Um, but I'll go out and I'll cut it down about half to three quarters of an inch below the soil. The top is good chicken food. And the bottom root just got left in the dirt. And it's going to rot in the soil. It's going to put organic matter in the soil. It's going to leave a compost it's going to leave a place for water to get in and it's breaking apart that soil for you so weeds really are our friend now when they take over the garden that's a different story we have to stay on top of them Uh, but that weeds are a great way to help us build our garden soil i had a friend a while back about five or six years ago and he called me and he said greg jan my wife would like a garden so this is a longtime friend i've known steve for 30 plus years And he's done a lot of computer work for me over the years, so I couldn't say no. I said, send a picture of your garden space for me. He sent it over. It was on an eastern exposure, so it was getting sun from sunup until noon. Perfect place for a garden. It was a four-foot-wide bed, 16 feet long, four inches below grade, and there was a nice brick border around it, and there was no Bermuda or no nutgrass in the space. At that point, I was, you know, doing the happy dance. When I got his pictures, because all I did is I took in about 16 cubic feet of planting mix. I added it right on top. And while I was adding it on top, Jan was watering it in. And then we planted. We planted peas and it was this was a fall garden. So we planted peas and all the stuff that you would plant in a fall garden. And they did the work. Those plants did the work. And eventually that soil got mixed up and it got you know worked on so there are really super easy ways to get a garden in where you don't have to do a lot of digging and it starts with observation now if i had a garden if i had that same garden and there was bermuda or nutgrass in place you have to deal with that first you have to dig it out that's really the only solution for getting rid of bermuda and nutgrass is go out with a shovel and every two weeks you got to dig it out yep (laughs) so there you go and deep you got to go a couple inches to get it out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Usually four to six inches to get the Bermuda nutgrass out. Absolutely. So healthy soil. Let's review that again real quick. It's organic matter. Everything that's alive in the soil. Well, we need to talk about that a little bit more. Airspace, water, and dirt. Five components. Everything that's alive in the soil. It's mycorrhiza. It's bacteria. It's uh, fungi, fungus. It's all those things. And the... Plants make a deal with all of this life that's in the soil, and they work together. And so the healthier your soil is, the healthier your plants are, the healthier your plants are, the healthier the food coming off of it is. And every time you add chemicals to your garden, that's negatively impacting your soil. So that's why I've been organic for almost 29 years at the Urban Farm. 
Uh, I say almost 29 because uh, it'll be September when I'll have been there not 29 years. <laughs> well, I can handle that kind of organic. I, yeah. Uh, a knife from the kitchen for weeds. And well, we've got one more segment coming up here. And as always, more bullet points than we can fit in the last one. What, what are we going to focus on to wrap this up? Well, we're going to talk seeds and when to plant seeds. Super important. Observation, watering, soil conditions. Let's get something in the ground. But before we do that with Farmer Greg, what is this uh, text grow food to 33444? I want to make sure we don't run out of time before we cover that. Thank you for that. So I created about 15 years ago with my friend Matt. We, we actually created a planting calendar for this area. And I put it together in a spreadsheet, and I give it away for free on our website, plantingcalendar.org. You can get it there. Or you can text Grow Food to 33444, and it is a two-page what-you-should-plant-when calendar for the low desert. So what are we planting? What are we planting now? Well, it's a little bit too late for tomatoes, but peppers will do great. Peppers, eggplant, Okra, if you like okra, all of the vining, anything goes in now. Cucumbers, watermelons, pumpkins. Some of the kales will still do really well. The big thing about this is you can't trust the nurseries. You really need to go into the nursery knowing what you can plant when. Because if you go into a nursery these days and they sell you a brassica, which is broccoli, cauliflower, those kinds of things, it's too late in the season. And what happens with it is you put it in the ground and it immediately goes to seed. So you really need to know going in what you can and can't plant. Uh, Most of the herbs are really good right now. Basil, oregano, thyme. Cilantro, however, is a wintertime crop, not a summertime crop. Remember I mentioned in an earlier segment we talked about sweet potatoes? Now's a great time to plant sweet potatoes. And where you get them, go to the grocery store and get yourself an organic. Make sure it's an organic sweet potato. Cut it in three pieces and stick it in the ground. You don't have to put it with the toothpicks and put it no. in a mason jar for a little time. Well, just you can do that to straight. get started with it, but uh, you know, just sticking them in the ground, make sure they have water. They will grow. I have sweet potatoes that I harvest every year at the urban farm that I have not. They were planted, I believe, 20-plus years ago, and they just come back year after year after year because I don't get them all harvested. And the ones that don't get harvested, they rot in the ground and put compost right in the ground. And then little pieces of the root are still alive, and they come back year after year. Yeah. So, that easy. <laughs> is there a certain variety? I mean, because I— sweet, pota- sweet potatoes, in my opinion, are sweet potatoes. Get them in the ground. Okay. You know, another really cool thing that grows wild in my yard are Jerusalem artichokes. Now, Jerusalem artichokes are a root crop— they're not the kind that grow above ground. They look, they're also called sun chokes, so they look like sunflowers, and they'll get to be 14, 16 feet tall, and then you harvest them in, the, uh, in December, January, and it's this little potato-looking thing. Usually they're about the size of a golf ball or a little bit bigger, and they're starchy like a potato, and they're, you know, they're quite good. It's called a Jerusalem artichoke. Jerusalem artichoke. I've never heard of one. And often Trader Joe's will sell them. So if you see them at Trader Joe's, just buy a bag and plant some in your yard. Okay. 
Buy two bags, eat one, and plant the other. How many other things at the grocery store can I just grab and stick in the yard? <laughs> uh, garlic. Garlic. Uh, yep. I often will plant garlic that way. Uh, leeks. You mm-hmm. can do that sometimes with leeks. Um, yeah, we grow most of our green onions just in a mason jar on the windowsill. No, well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. All right. So uh, a couple other bullet points you've got here talking about picking, open pollinating. I've, uh, right. I'm a picking big the right pollinator. seeds. Picking the right seeds. So everybody's likely heard of GMO or genetically modified. The good news about that is is that it's not something we as home gardeners generally have to work with because genetically modified seeds are for industrial you know the industrial food system they're not for home gardeners so at this point you know we're not going to find them in our garden so that's the good news hybrids is another kind of seed and then you mentioned open pollinated i generally plant only open pollinated in my yard open pollinated are they're generally the older seeds the older varieties not the older seeds the older mm-hmm. varieties and they when you plant them, they produce true to what the last generation was. So I've got parsley growing in my yard. It grows wild in my yard. In fact, it grows wild in my lawn <laughs> and in my garden beds. And because what happened is I used an open pollinated parsley about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And I let it go to seed every year and it drops its seed and it, you know, the plants just come back over and over and over again. I do that with nasturtiums, with basil, with oregano, uh, with lettuce. There's lettuce that grows wild in my yard. So I have all of these things that they just, it's like a forest. They just come back year after year, and it's because they're open pollinated. And what does that mean? What does open pollinated seed mean? Oh, my gosh. That's a big old long story, and I just got the number one. So let's cover that next month because right. I want to talk on hybrids real quick. Hybrids are something that they do they, where they take watermelon A and watermelon B, cross-pollinate it, and you get watermelon C, which is really sweet and uh, seedless, right? Are they bad? They're absolutely not bad. That's been something that's ha- been happening for hundreds of, if not thousands of years, uh, and the, only, the downside to hybrids is that they don't necessarily produce true to what you started with. So I'm an open pollinated guy for my yard for, you know, the reasons that it makes it so easy. And I'm sure that's what is it, the Great American Seed Up. Oh, yes. In September 22nd and 23rd, we have the Great American Seed Up. People can come in and get all kinds of open pollinated seeds. More on that in the next few months. Sounds good. We are uh, wrapping up this hour with Farmer Greg of the Urban Farm, urbanfarm.org. You'd also mentioned plantingcalendar.org to yep. get a win, what to plant when. We'll look forward to seeing you back here in a month.